They may make it across the road nine times out of ten, but in the event that they don't, it's likely to be catastrophic. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Wacken. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 73 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Courtney Kogenauer and Jennifer Farr from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, about their research, which found that for each additional $1,000 in a car's value, the odds that their owners will yield to pedestrians is reduced by 3%. Here are Courtney Kogenauer and Jenny Farr. Hello, I'm Courtney Kogenauer. I'm an assistant professor at the UNLV School of Public Health. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I completed my undergraduate degree at Penn State University. I then moved to Las Vegas, Nevada to get my master's and PhD at UNLV, and I never left. So, hi, I'm Jenny Farr. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and received my bachelor's degree in nutrition from Stephen F. Austin State University have a master's in kinesiology with an emphasis in exercise physiology from Texas A&M University. And I came to UNLV to get my PhD in public health and have been here ever since. As can be seen in the ruins of Pompeii, pedestrian crossings already existed at least 2,000 years ago. But in 2019, there were an estimated 6,590 pedestrians killed in traffic crashes in the United States, or two deaths per 100,000 people. This startling data led Doug and I to start our conversation with Courtney and Jenny by asking them to outline what it was that their study set out to investigate. It is it okay if I start, Courtney, and then you can sure. fill in all the gaps? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Courtney and I, were both physically active and we go out and walk and walk our dogs and run and stuff. And one day we were just sort of talking about, you know, gosh, it seems like the people who don't yield whenever we, each of us get to a crosswalk are people who drive more expensive cars. And so as researchers, we're like, um, maybe we should study this, not just assume that this is true, right? So we developed a study to examine this phenomenon, to actually to see if people who don't yield for pedestrians actually do tend to drive more expensive cars. So I had a couple of GoPros sitting in my desk not being used. So I said, hey, let's use those for the study. And so Courtney and a group of her students took those out to some mid-block crosswalks so those are crosswalks that aren't associated with a stop sign or a stoplight. They're just sort of, they're mid-block, right? They took the GoPros out to those two different intersections and recorded as pedestrians, students, attempted to cross the street, recorded the vehicles who either paused to let the pedestrian cross the street or did not stop, did not yield. And then one of our undergraduate public health students really got into looking at the videos and looking at the make and model of the car from the video and then using the Kelly Blue Book to get an estimated value of the car. And then from there, we did the statistical analysis to see if, in fact, it was true, if people who drove more expensive cars were less likely to yield for pedestrians who were attempting to cross the street. Pretty good. I don't know that I have anything to fill in there. (laughs) We followed up by asking for additional details about the setting of their study, why they chose those sites, and what directions they provided their pedestrians to ensure their safety as best possible. So we found two mid-block crosswalks that were both in a 
relatively lower income area. I believe the median household income was between 30 and 40,000 in both of the neighborhoods. And the mid-block crosswalks were located within one mile of a school. Both of them were. Um, And so we chose those areas because we thought that drivers may be more used to seeing pedestrians, right? Because it is somewhat near a school, although we did do our crossings on a weekend day, but it's near a school. And, you know, we thought that there might be more people walking for transportation in those areas. We had picked two different roads that were designed the same way. So there are were two travel lanes in each direction with a center turning lane. And both roads had a posted speed limit sign of 35 miles per hour. I say posted because we know people tend to go a little faster than that. Um, so the speed limit was posted at 35. In both intersections, the public health student that was out there, they picked a a designated marker that was about 200 yards away. So for example, like one of the crosswalks, it was a tree, right? So there was like a certain tree that was, you know, they could see but 200 yards away or so. And so the pedestrian, once a car would approach that marker, they would step up to the curb and put one foot off the curb. So they're facing traffic with one foot in the road um, as the car would approach. And so that is in theory, right, plenty of time for the driver to see the pedestrian and stop. We made sure that they did not step off of the road until they were able to make eye contact with the driver. The car was visibly slowing. So we obviously wanted to ensure safety of our research participants. And so the pedestrians wore red t-shirts and crossed the road in the same manner. And we gave the drivers ample opportunity to stop. They also did not cross the road when any other pedestrians were present. So if there was someone else that was, you know, just from the neighborhood that was walking by, they would wait until those pedestrians had crossed the street before they started up with their uh, field experiments again. In 2017, Courtney carried out a similar study looking into whether the gender and race of pedestrians affected drivers' yielding behaviors. So Doug and I were curious to hear what she and her colleagues learned from that research. What we're finding is that men are more likely to be hit by cars than women. Um, And when you look at pedestrian fatalities, especially men have a very elevated risk compared to women for getting hit by a car that results in a fatality. Yeah, men also tend to walk more while intoxicated. And so that increases risk. And uh, they also tend to take more riskier behaviors than women do. So the walking rates are not vastly different between men and women, but it's sort of the behavior while walking that that differentiates the, the risk. We also know that racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to be hit by a car compared to Caucasian pedestrians. So 1.8 Caucasian pedestrians are hit and killed by a car for every 100,000. African-Americans are like 2.5 Hispanic or even higher. They're over three. So there definitely is a disparity when we look at pedestrian fatalities by both gender and race and ethnicity. In advance of our conversation, Jenny and Courtney shared a 2013 paper they published about the extent to which pedestrian crashes differ between socio-demographics identified through census tracts. So Ryan and I asked them to describe what it was that they previously did and found. Courtney and I also did a study of a few years ago. and We had pedestrian crash data from, I think it was 2009 to 2011. So it was looking at 
all the incidents where a pedestrian was hit by a car that resulted either in injury or death. So we had all that big, huge injury pool to look at as well. The majority of pedestrian crashes happened during the day, happened when the pedestrian um, was in a crosswalk. And we did some geospatial mapping of where these crashes were occurring. And then we overlaid some census data. So we found that the crashes really clustered within census tracts that had the lower median household income, that had higher Hispanic population, and also had a higher mean age of the, of the people living within the census tract. So those are some of the key findings that we found from that first initial study. And I think a lot of assumptions are that, oh, well, you know, pedestrian crashes happen not during the day. They happen at night. They happen when the weather's bad. They happen when the driver or the walker is impaired. And really what we found is they happen during the day. They happen when it's bright and sunny. They happen when neither the pedestrian or the driver is impaired. So we were, I think, surprised by some of the results that we found in that study. In their 2020 study, Courtney and Jenny found that relative to the price of another car, for each additional $1,000 that a driver's car was valued, the odds of them yielding to pedestrians decreased by 3%. This led Doug and I to imagine that the cars which failed to yield were piloted by stereotypical rich young lawyers with some newfound cash, aggressively driving however they pleased. But in their article, Courtney and Jenny reported that the average value of the cars which yielded to pedestrians was about $6,000, while that of the cars which did not was just over $7,500. So we asked them to adjust our understanding about how a car's cost is a predictor of whether drivers are likely to yield or not. So when we were trying to figure out the methodology of how to uh, quantify the cost of the car, we followed a similar methodology to another researcher. Um, Piff and uh, him and his colleagues. Uh, slightly different though, because we estimated the high end of what we thought the car could cost and the low end of the Kelly Blue Book value, and then averaged that because we just felt a little more comfortable than you know making our best guess. But I think that kind of brought down our estimates a bit. Um, it may have potentially been underestimated given that we did that, but we wanted to make sure we. We don't want to skew our own data, but the average cost of the car wasn't super high. I think that most expensive car was in the yeah $37,000 range and the low was about $1,500. That was the lowest end. But I mean, we did have some of the flashy cars, right? We'll call them, I guess there was like an Infiniti, a Lexus. We did have some BMWs uh, as well, but you know, many of them are like a Toyota Tundra a Chevy Silverado truck, a Honda Pilot. And they were expensive cars, but they weren't necessarily flashy. Or like, I mean, by looking at the Kelly Blue Book and um, trying to get an estimate that way, the cost of the car would depreciate over time, right? So if it was an older Lexus, then maybe it's still a Lexus and maybe the person paid a lot of money for it in, in the day. But, you know, if it's five or 10 years old, then that would kind of bring down the median cost of the car as well. As with their prior research, Courtney and Jenny's present study aimed to predict the successfulness of pedestrians crossing by their ethnicity and gender, in this case, by 120 distinct attempts. One quarter of the crossings were attempted by a female African-American student of theirs, another quarter by a white female student, another quarter by a male white student, and the final quarter by an African-American male student. However, as they report in their paper, due to battery failure as a result of ambient outdoor temperatures exceeding 100 degrees Fahrenheit, Their GoPros failed, 
resulting in a loss of data. So Brian and I were interested in learning more about this, as well as how it impacted their study's findings. Yeah, it was over, you know, summer in Vegas, it gets a little warm. So I think it was, you know, over 110 that day with that GoPro sitting there tied to a, you know, light pole or whatever for, you know, a few hours. It, yeah, it fried the battery and it just shut off. So, yeah, so we lost some data because of that. Um, our statistician thinks that, you know, we would have been able to find some statistical significance in um, racial disparities had we not lost that data. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, for research purposes, uh, it, it kind of hindered our ability to interpret some of the results. Just one of the hazards, I suppose, of doing research in the summer in Las Vegas. <laughs> hey, Courtney, was it this study or the previous one where one of the GoPros got stolen, like, while everyone was standing yeah, around was the, doing the study? <laughs> the last one. Was, yeah, that was, was the last one. So we had the, the high-income area, and we were kind of comparing that to that the previous study that you mentioned, the 2017 study, we compared high and low-income crosswalks. Yeah, and it was the high-income area. Everyone was just standing around, and a car drove by. Someone jumped out, took it off the pool, and got back in the car and drove away uh, before anyone could, you know, do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The hazards of doing research in a high income neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. As of a week ago, 13 pedestrians have been killed in Las Vegas this year, nearly as many as were killed in all of 2019. And this despite the state having been under stay at home orders for the past month due to the coronavirus pandemic. Such crashes are the leading cause of traffic-related deaths in Las Vegas. So Doug and I were curious why the city experiences such a high rate of these tragedies. People have done studies to show how long pedestrians will yield. We do know that the longer they have to wait, the more likely they are to not cross at a crosswalk, right, or to dart or to basically just not follow the rules of the road. Similarly, we see that with drivers as well. Like the longer a red light is, the more likely they are to go through a yellow light, right? So when it's almost like a penalty for having to having to yield, right? If, if the light is so long, people are more likely to kind of run it as well. And so that's another thing that I feel like as public health professionals and transportation engineers is that you want to make sure that you're creating an environment that facilitates the healthy behavior, right? So if a pedestrian is standing there waiting for, you know, 45 seconds to a minute every time they cross the road, they're going to stop going to that crosswalk, right? So we don't want to set them up to fail. So if drivers can yield, right, then people will continue to cross in, you know, the safe fashion. Um, but if they're continuously not rewarded for doing the safe behavior, then they're probably going to do what any other pedestrian would do, right? And cross where it's most convenient for them. They may make it across the road nine times out of 10, but in the event that they don't, it's likely to be catastrophic. And so of course we want to minimize the risk of that happening. This has been a, a few years ago and we took a few students with us and we went to an area of town where there are just a really high number of pedestrian crashes Every night on the news, it seems like they were talking about this particular intersection. So we went there just to study it, to see, you know, why is this happening? And so it was five lanes of traffic because there was a turn lane, then four lanes of traffic, 45 miles an hour. And that was just going in one direction. Then there was a pedestrian refuge, like a, you know, piece of concrete where people could stand between each direction of traffic. And then they had to cross another five lanes of traffic. 
And the timer did not give people time to get completely across the street. Pedestrians could go from one side to the middle to in between, and then they'd have to wait for another two minutes to get a signal to cross the rest of the way. And it's just talk about setting people up to do unhealthy behaviors, right? If you, if it's 110 degrees outside or the bus is stopped and you're trying to get across the street to have to wait in between traffic, you know, people going 45, 50 miles an hour on either side of you, that's not ideal for pedestrians and people aren't going to wait. And we observed a lot of people darting and not waiting because again, because it just wasn't set up for that sort of um, the healthier behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Pedestrians are willing to wait about 90 seconds. So that just kind of proves the point there of expecting pedestrians to wait like two plus minutes in the middle of a cement refuge with no shade and, you know, cars whizzing by them. It's it's just not going to happen. During our conversation with space archaeologist Alice Gorman in episode six of Parsing Science, Brian and I asked her what the basic makeup of a crewed mission to Mars ought to include, and we were surprised by her compelling argument that it should involve an anthropologist so as to better understand the newly isolated culture astronauts would likely experience. Mentioning this to Courtney and Jenny, we reckoned that something similar might also exist for public health experts with regard to the rationale for their being involved in city planning efforts. We'll hear what they had to say after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Opmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com products. Now back to passing science. Here again is Courtney Kogenauer and Jenny Farr. I think it's moving in that direction, yes. I think that's, you know, relatively new well, within the last maybe 10 years or so. But yes, we're starting to come together again. So planners, transportation engineers, um, and public health uh, is starting to recognize the need that we're all interconnected. In fact, Jenny and I, with a few other colleagues here, are working on a project currently with our local public works department looking at ways to help them think about health when they're designing and creating new transportation projects. You know, I can say at least locally here, we're making that movement, but I think across the country that, you know, that's kind of been happening for for a little while, but I would say it is still relatively new. It's like kind of a great opportunity for us to work with sectors outside of the health sector. So like planning, transportation, things like that. And it's through doing health impact assessments. And so that's what Courtney and I and our colleagues are working with our city and our regional transportation commission on. So, you know, when they're thinking about redesigning a road or building a new road in the planning process to think about how it's going to impact human health, you know, based on the speed limit or if they're off street bike paths or lighting or pedestrian signals and, you know, things like that. How can we be at the table and just bring to mind and bring to the decisions how anything that they're doing is going to be impactful to health? And so when you're talking about roads, we're usually talking about pedestrian and bicycle safety, right? Trying to avoid crashes. And so it's been really great sitting at the table with them. And it seems like the team we're working with, they're younger planners, and they really are very interested in health and how the decisions that they make are going to impact health and bikeability and walkability of our city. Yeah, so many public health decisions are made outside of the health sector, and we can't really do 
our job unless we're working with other sectors. It's great when we're invited to the table. In a 2018 report, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration indicated that pedestrian fatalities increased by 5% between 2007 and 2016, with 2016 fatalities being the highest since 1990. So Doug and I were eager to learn if the cause of this nationwide uptick is known. I will speculate here, so take it for what it's worth, that I think our walking behavior and our driving behavior has become more distracted. Uh, we do know that distracted driving rates have gone up, even though you know every state basically has a hands-free law. People are still using devices right while driving and while walking as well, right? So people maybe are a little less, I guess, keen to what's going on around them while they're walking. So I think that is playing a large role, but also I think just infrastructure isn't supportive of pedestrian safety. Sprawl has been common, you know, in the Southwest, but it's not unique to the Southwest. In most suburbs around major metropolitan areas, we see sprawl. And so we know that, you know, that is bad for for pedestrian safety. And so I think in addition to distraction, we also are seeing just infrastructure that is not very supportive for pedestrians. Right. A lot of times it seems like our streets and our cities are planned around the car Here in Las Vegas, our highways keep getting more lanes added to them, and we have streets that maybe have high speeds, so 45, 50, 55 miles an hour within the city, not on the highways, and there's a long space between stoplights, and pedestrians are going to sort of take the path of least resistance. You know, if you're living maybe in an apartment and the grocery store is across the street and to cross at a crosswalk at a stoplight, you might have to walk half a mile out of your way, you know, down to the light and cross and then walk a half a mile back to the grocery store when it's just right across the street. Because of this design, then you have people darting, you know, running out into traffic and those sort of things. So distraction, yes, is definitely contributed. But then, you know, how are we designing our cities to make it so that people can walk safely Maybe it's reducing speed limits. Maybe it's putting crosswalks in where pedestrians can cross, where there's you know high volume of people that need to get from point A to point B and those sort of things. The proportion of people killed in outside the vehicle crashes, including motorcyclists, pedestrians, bikers, and other non-occupants, has increased from a low of 20% in the 14 years prior to 2000 to a high of 33% in 2015-2016. Given this substantial escalation in fatalities, Ryan and I wondered whether simple solutions like hybrid beacons, those flashers embedded in the roadway, might be an easy yet effective countermeasure to protect pedestrians. Yeah, those are definitely options, but I will say that, you know, some research does also show that driver behavior over time, even with the flashers, does tend to wane a bit. And so while people may be more likely to stop with the flashers than nothing at all, when they're first installed, people really follow them. But then the longer they're there, drivers sort of get used to them being there and are less likely to yield. An issue that I've sort of again, just anecdotally experienced is sometimes, you know, when a pedestrian pushes a light, the flashers go and they cross the street, but then the lights keep flashing for a little bit longer. And so now drivers are thinking like, you know, where is the pedestrian? And if they're not in the road, then I'm just going to keep going. Um, I've had the experience where I've 
you know, push the button and the car that's closest to me then speeds up to hurry up and get through their crosswalk. But, you know, you can have a crosswalk without just with signage, without any flashers. Um, and then you could put in maybe a, just a, a yellow light that flashes continuously, right? So then all of a sudden now the drivers are more aware of the crosswalk, but then they get desensitized to that. And so then you can do the, where the pedestrian pushes the button and it only flashes when they're trying to cross. And, and then over time, do they then as well get desensitized to that? You know, an important finding from the study, in addition to the looking at the, the lower yielding behaviors is that less than 30% of all of the cars yielded for the for the pedestrian in the crosswalk. And so this is an important uh, piece of information, right, for pedestrians that just because you're in a crosswalk, don't just step out into the street assuming that the car is going to yield, you know, really make sure that you have eye contact with the driver, that they're slowing down, that they intend to stop for you before you just walk out into the crosswalk, I think is sort of another take-home message from the study. So, yeah, I mean, it's just driving behaviors like, you know, any other behavior is just so interesting and so many things to unpack with this certain topic. That was Courtney Koganauer and Jennifer Farr discussing their article, Estimated Car Cost as a Predictor of Driver Yielding Behaviors for Pedestrians, which was published with multiple co-authors on February 18th, 2020 in the Journal of Transport and Health. You'll find a link to their open access paper at parsingscience.org slash e73, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. We hope that Parsing Science helps you hear what you might not have time to read. And if you're new to the show or just missed a few of our recent episodes, head over to parsingscience.org to check out our entire catalog. There you'll find our conversation with our guest from the previous episode, Akchu Rasbone, about the decimation of the Laos wild tiger population, as well as the episode before that, in which we spoke with Veronica Seviano about why it is that we treat one animal species so differently from another. Next time in episode 74 of Parsing Science, we'll hear from Amalia Bastos about her research demonstrating that, for the first time, a species outside of primates, the Kia parrot, has the ability to truly understand and act on probabilities. If I put my hand in a jar full of blue candies and a few yellow candies, and I show you a closed fist and I ask you what is in my hand, you should tell me that it's a blue candy because the probability of me getting a blue candy is much higher than a yellow candy. The only three species at the moment that we know to definitely be able to do this are humans, chimpanzees, and you know, there's potentially other great apes, but chimpanzees definitely, and Kia. We hope that you'll join us again.